Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and includes some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast covering high profile and under the radar cases from across the country every week. I'm your host, Anna Garcia. Our cases this week are about two young women, 118, 119, both killed. But in one case, the killer gets 12 years in prison and in the other, the killer will get anywhere between 30 years to life. In Florida, a wealthy older man says that he and his 18-year-old girlfriend were just playing around with a gun and it accidentally went off killing her. Is it justice that he just gets 12 years in prison? Did the system give him a pass because he was allegedly so high at the time? It's a case that we've been following for two years here on the podcast. But first, a troubling case out of Alaska where the murder of an 18-year-old girl with special needs was orchestrated by a catfisher who posed as a millionaire online after exchanging messages requesting sexually explicit photos and videos of minors, the man reportedly offered the accused killer $9 million for the rape and murder of the victim. Now, one of the girl's murderers has finally pleaded guilty to first-degree murder. We are recording this on Wednesday, February 22nd of 2023. Our guest today is Lonnie Coombs, a former prosecutor who's also an author and a legal analyst. Welcome back, Lonnie. How are you? I am doing great, and thanks for having me back. I always enjoy my time with you. Oh, so do we. And just letting everyone know that for the first time in forever, Los Angeles is under a blizzard watch. How crazy is that, Lonnie? I know. And I'm looking out the window and there's blue skies. So I'm not sure. I guess it's coming. It's it's just been the weirdest weather, right? With all the rain we've been having and 
I, I just told my husband, I said, you know, I'm, I like having semi-summer all year round. I'm not used to having like real seasons here. Well, as real as they are. So. Right. It's just so weird. A blizzard. Really? This is what we're preparing for. I heard it's snowing in Arizona right now. I mean. The world is coming to an end. I think it is. <laughs> All right, we have two cases today, and uh, I can't wait to hear your observations on this, Lonnie, because we always ask the question, what is justice? And in, and in these two cases, um, it seems like justice or the sentences are extremes from each other, even though in both cases, we have two young women who are dead at the hand of someone else. Mm -hmm. Um so I always find that very frustrating. I, I hope you can help us out on this. All right, let's get to our first case. This is out of Anchorage, Alaska, where a young woman has admitted to killing her friend because some guy online offered her $9 million if she killed someone and then made a video of it. What's happened? Lonnie, what's happening to people? Have they really, who would do such a thing? Well, I don't know, but it seems like more and more people um, now, I don't know what's going on with our society and I don't know how much the social media, you know, influence has on it. And, um, you know, the desire to get money quick, it kind of like that the whole image of social media is like, you can become famous quick, you can make a lot of money quick. And I, and I wonder how much the offer of $9 million to this young girl really played into this. I don't know, but you, the, you know, the person that was offering this had this whole story of who he, and it was all, it was all fake. So, so it's, it's all like, it, there's so much out in the world now, um, you know, with AI coming up now, we, we don't know what was real anymore. And it's like people, don't value human life anymore either because it's almost like human beings our fellow brothers and sisters aren't real in some people's minds anymore either so oh i can get nine million dollars to what you want me to kill somebody okay no big deal it's 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 kind of it's very sad and it's scary that you know our typical civilization boundaries of what we used to think was right and wrong seem to be very blurred in a lot of people's minds um you know right now yeah, and $9 million is such an extreme amount of money. I realized that she thought that this man was a millionaire, but it's just such an odd, you know, it's just so extreme. Like, really, a millionaire is going to find you online and offer you $9 million to kill someone? Really? Yeah. Again, you know, how this didn't raise red flags for the people on the other side of this, but again, you know, I... I we don't, the value of human life, I don't, I don't understand how we are starting to value it. And that also goes towards, you know, the sentences, because how do we value human lives to have such a great disparity between the sentences in these two cases? So um, in this case, we're talking about 22-year-old Denali Bremer, and she has pleaded guilty to the 2019 murder of 19-year-old Cynthia Hoffman. She's the victim here. Now, the two were considered close friends, and according to police, Denali and an accomplice and then some other people uh, are brought into this through the indictments, duct-taped Cynthia and then shot her in the head and then pushed her body in a creek. And, and, and like, how do you do this to your best friend? And what we need to really, really be mindful of here is the victim had, according to her dad, um, a learning disability and other challenges that made her emotionally um, much younger than her age. And all she wanted was to have friends. And th this group of people 
meant the world to Cynthia. And that, to me, is the cruelest part of this. Well, and I think we have to recognize, too, we're getting the um, the idea that they were best friends from Denali, right? I don't know that, I mean, it clearly seems like this wasn't a real friendship. They were just using her, right? And she was vulnerable, and she was, like you said, probably thrilled to be with what she thought was her friend group, which is why she was willing to go along with this. But Denali and the other people involved here clearly targeted her for that reason because they figured that they could get her to go along with this and use her in such a horrific I mean horrific way the way she was killed um you know must have been such a horrible thing for her to all of a sudden realize what was happening I mean you know it it was almost like I can't compute that this is being done by these these young people who are my age who I thought were my friends and they're doing this horrible thing to me, you know? Right. Like it can't possibly be real. It just, it can't be that they wouldn't do this. You know, the, her dad said she trusted these people. She really did. And so, cause you, you might say, okay, well, and the other thing is we are getting the version of events in addition to whatever forensics there are, we're getting it from the person who's already admitted to it and the others who are accused in this. And then, and the the accused are doing kind of this thing. Oh no, she did it. Oh no, he did it. There's a lot of that going on with this group. So I don't even know what the truth is. All I do know is that a 19 year old is dead and she shouldn't be. That's the only thing I'm absolutely certain of. And the rest of this noise, the catfishing and all this, I realize it contributed to this. But again, you know, there is a moral decision on what you do with a human being and Mm -hmm. Um, this was a complete violation of all codes of humanity. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Again, why do this? $9 million. Really? Someone's going to give you $9 million? Good luck with that one. So prosecutors say that the murderer, that the murder, excuse me, was allegedly orchestrated by a man named Darren Schillmiller. Now, he is the one who, according to authorities, offered the $9 million for the sexual assault and murder of someone in Alaska. They wanted it in Alaska. Darren allegedly poses a millionaire from Kansas under the name of Tyler. Darren is accused of soliciting the defendants in this case for photos and videos of the crime while it was taking place. Additionally, um, all sorts of, and I think this is maybe where the manipulation comes in, where you befriend someone, you see this all the time online, especially with young people, then they start providing videos and photos that are compromising when you're dealing with minors, then it becomes a whole like, oh, if you don't do this, I'm going to tell everyone. And then uh, a lot of times the victims don't have the wherewithal to figure their their way out of this. Mm -hmm. Uh, But again, I mean, is it an explanation? Is it an excuse? I don't know, Lonnie. I just, I can't even stomach it. It kind of is starting to look a little bit like um, sort of a Ghislaine Maxwell relationship perhaps where they start this relationship with the the person who is exerting influence over them and then they start to do things um to procure victims to do things that they're being directed to now is it because they're in fear for their life or is it because they want to do it um and, and what's interesting is when they go through denali's phone they find in there evidence of a sexual assault perpetrated by denali on a 15 year old female victim so 
if I was a prosecutor, I wouldn't be seeing her as, you know, as a victim here. I'd be saying, look, there's a lot more involvement here. Uh, who really is the mastermind here that she's, you know, that she is doing these things herself. Um, and, and to say you're doing them out of fear because of this person that you've met, and I don't think you've ever met in real life. Uh, again, you know, a lot of comparisons to Ghislaine Maxwell, and a lot of people, there's still controversy over, was she a victim? Was she, you know, should she have been prosecuted to the level she did? Um, and, and I think nowadays, like you said, prosecutors get these weird situations where there's like one person that looks like they're pulling the strings and other people that are out perpetrating these crimes and, and who's the big fish or are they all equally culpable? Should they all be equally punished? Well, you have one person dead and people have to answer to that, you know, and, and it sounds, even though we have not had uh, any trials yet on any of the others who are accused, based on what prosecutors and police are saying, it certainly sounds like there was active involvement by the others if we are to believe what prosecutors say. Uh, you know, the justice system will, I guess, ultimately determine what happened there and what kind of cooperation we get. A little bit more background on where where we are here. We're in Anchorage, East Anchorage. Uh, Cynthia Hoffman, who was 19, also went by CC. She lived uh, with her father, uh, Tim Hoffman, and there was a very large mixed family in which they all lived together. So that included brothers, sisters, and also the children of other family members. And dad worked as a handyman. He said that his daughter, Cynthia, had this learning disability, which made school very challenging for her. She graduated from high school in 2018, and then she worked with her dad on construction sites. So um, he called his Cynthia his right-hand man. Uh, he said that she and her sisters were all very talented in, in the trades because they helped with measuring windows, churning concrete, and, and everything else that dad had to do. So it certainly sounds like the kind of world that we envision when we think of Alaska, right? Um, over this, so everything kind of happened over a weekend. The, the date here is June 2nd of 2019. And Cynthia, her sister and her dad were busy prepping for a trip. And as a thank you, dad offers his daughters a little bit of money and a trip to the mall, right? What 19-year-old does not want to go to the mall with a little cash in her pockets? <laughs> it's my kind of a, it's a dream day, right? <laughs> so Cynthia was supposed to meet up with her sister to get the money, but she never showed up. And so that's the last time that we know that Cynthia was seen by her family. The next day, she's reported missing. Police start questioning the best friends. And then this all starts to unravel. Um, at first, Denali said that she was smoking weed with Cynthia and 16-year-old Caden McIntosh, and that they stopped in a parking lot near Thunderbird Falls. Now, according to Denali, and things, I think, start changing here, Lonnie, the three of them... Please explain this to me, right? The three of them agreed, right? They agreed to duct tape each other and start taking photographs. Okay, maybe they thought it was a fun thing to do, but remember as part of what the authorities say was the fulfillment of the, um, the requirements to get that $9 million was this had to be videotaped. So the duct tape would be the beginning of it. So apparently Cynthia went along with it. Remember, Cynthia may not have truly comprehended what was going on, but then she started to panic. Now, this is from their perspective. She started to panic um, because, you know, she was completely taped up her mouth, her hands, her ankles. And then when they went to remove, this is what they say, when they went to remove 
the duct tape, uh, Cynthia said, I'm going to tell the police what you've done to me in this, again, this sense of panic, whether this is true or not. And I'm going to say that, you know, you guys kidnapped me and you assaulted me. And then Denali tells police, whether this is true or not, that she had a gun, but the other guy took the gun and then shot Cynthia in the back of the head. And then they pushed her in the creek. I don't know who to believe here. Well, it's interesting because I think they're telling some of the truth because when they found her body, she had been shot in the back of the head and she was duct taped. But it's interesting. They're saying that they, they took the duct tape off of her. And then that's when the confrontation happened. They shot and killed her. She still had that duct tape on. I don't believe they ever took that duct tape off her. I don't believe there was ever this confrontation about, oh, I'm going to call the police. I bet she did start to panic at some point, And that's probably when they shot her. I also, you know, when they said, we all agreed to put duct tape on and take pictures. Well, notice who there's only one person who's getting that duct tape put on them, right? It's the victim. So um, I, I think that between the two, and it's interesting that they both do give statements. They both do talk to the police about it. Um, but so I think there's truth mixed in with, you know, making it their own version. Yep. Cynthia's body was found on June 4th of 2019 in the Creek where Denali had indicated that this whole incident happened and that she had been pushed in. And as you said, her wrists and her ankles were still taped together. So where was she going to run? She couldn't go anywhere duct taped there. There's, there's nothing she could do. So then the pair admit, whether this is true or not, that they made up the whole story about how then they dropped off Cynthia at another place because obviously they had to explain what happened to Cynthia. Where is Cynthia? Why isn't Cynthia home? Um, But they allegedly burned Cynthia's purse, clothing, and the murder weapon. Why do that if you didn't do anything wrong? Mm Mm-hmm. So the authorities then interviewed Caden McIntosh and, and Caden seemed to back up a lot of Denali's story, but then he adds, I blacked out. So I don't remember shooting her. Isn't that convenient? It's the only time you black out. Maybe they thought that this was going to get them out of the murder, right? She says he grabbed the gun and shot and he goes, Oh, I blacked out, you know, everything from the actual murder part, I blacked out of. So maybe they thought that was going to work for them because between the two of them, they're both you know, kind of um, relinquishing responsibility of the actual killing from themselves. Of course, it's not going to work, but they might have thought that. Right. Uh, Clearly not very, very bright here. And especially if this was planned out, as it appears that it was planned out, it seems like the back end of this plan had not thoroughly been thought out. And again, was their intention to kill her? It certainly seems like it from all the communications, right? It's not like this was just a game. Right. Oh, gosh, this is so horrible. So um, detectives get a search warrant, as you said. And then within that, Denali's um, iPhone, a lot lot became so much clearer then, including the um, child pornography that they found on there. And then she was communicating with someone who in her contacts list was named Babe. Babe is Tyler, who is not Tyler, who is that 21-year-old from Indiana who's posing as the millionaire from Kansas. And so... Uh, You know, she starts explaining, this is who Babe is, this is Tyler, and they eventually figure out it's Darren Schillmiller of New Salisbury, Indiana, posing as all of this. So 
Denali and Darren have this online relationship and, um, you know, she's being asked to do a lot, but I guess she goes along with it. I don't know. She is of age. I mean, she's a consenting adult. And then that video that you talked about was horrific about that 15 year old being sexually assaulted. So then the FBI has a little conversation with 21 year old Darren. Okay. Darren of Indiana, what is going on here? And that's when he allegedly confesses to being the one who planned this. Now, we'll see. Uh, Darren selected Cynthia as the victim. Was it Darren that selected it or was it? I mean, we don't know. All these things that are being reported that are in court records and police records. I don't know what the truth is. I don't. In fact, you know, Lonnie, I don't believe any of them. I just think they're a bunch of liars, frankly. Okay, so it was two weeks after the murder that prosecutors secure a grand jury indictment for six suspects. This is, so we have Darren, supposedly the person who thought of this plan, Denali, who we've discussed, Caden, the 16-year-old boy, and then there are there are additional people, Caleb Leland, who is 19, he was named as a defendant because he allegedly allowed Denali and Caden to use his um, vehicle to pick up. So that was his alleged contribution in all of this. And then there are two juveniles allegedly involved, but they have not been named. And it's not clear to me what they may have allegedly done um, other than maybe, it seems like at least half a dozen people knew what the heck was going on here. Yeah. And then because they're juveniles, you know, they're not going to disclose anything, their names or their participation and who knows how much they actually participate. I mean, it sounds like from um, Denali's statement and Caden's statement that they're the ones who are primarily involved. So it could be tangential, like the guy who, who loaned them the car. We just don't know. Yeah. And, you know, the father had an opportunity to, to say something in court. And he said, again, he trusted she trusted these people and that my daughter just wanted to have friends. And that is so powerful when you think of young people who are either isolated, feel different from the rest of the kids. That hope and that newness of finally having friends in a relationship, we see this so much um, and we've seen such a horrible rash of um suicides across the country with cases about this where someone finally gets friends and then the friends turn on them. it's it's just it's just horrific it's it's playing with fire yeah I really I really feel for this father um he also said that when he went to the police he right away he knew something was wrong right he knew his daughter and um so he he was searching for her himself she he went to the police he went to the local news stations And after he reported his uh, daughter missing to the police, he was frustrated because he felt like they didn't take her learning disability, which he told them about seriously. um, And they didn't understand how vulnerable she was. And then later the police spokesperson said, oh, we didn't get that information. And if we had, (laughs) and if we had of, it wasn't, it wasn't included in the original reports. So maybe the father told them, but they didn't decide that it was important enough to put in the original reports. And the spokesperson said, if it had been there, they would have classified her as endangered. It would have prompted a Nixle report. Not sure what that is, but it would have informed the public to be on the lookout. So once again, you know, a missed opportunity, but they also said that 
this murder happened so quickly, it might not have, you know, ended up saving her, but it would have at least given her father some comfort. And another thing that happened to this poor father is that Denali, who's the one that's pled already, that she was texting him during this time he was searching for his daughter, but she was going by the name Angela. That's how they knew her as Angela. And he first she texted and said that his daughter had demanded she be dropped off at a nearby park, which she agreed to do. And then she was writing all of these other messages to him like, is she okay? I hope she comes home safely. She's my best friend. I'm starting to get worried. And then she started talking about some boys she didn't trust. Um, you know, trying to pass the, you know, the focus. And then she said, I know she will come home safe. Oh, she knew what had happened to this girl. And she is just constantly keeping the stream of communication going on with the father, just, I mean, causing even more pain to the father. you, You wonder what kind of mind does it take to not only do the murder, the killing, but then to play with the father in such a way. And remember, this is the one that the prosecution has already, you know, given a deal to. And it was a deal because she only pled to one count out of all the things she was charged with. So I don't know if the prosecution is thinking of using her as a witness against the other people if they go to trial, but she got a deal. And I'm wondering, I wonder if she was the one that they should have given a deal to. So she hasn't been sentenced though, right? And so it could be between- 30 in life. Right. And that's usually, you know, what prosecutors do if they decide that they want to, you know, somebody wants to plead and they go, well, okay, but we're going to, you know, need you potentially as a witness. If these other defendants go to trial, we'll use you to testify against them. So they give a a sentence range and then they don't sentence them until after everything else is taken care of. Because the deal is you have to testify truthfully, you know, otherwise we're not going to consider that in the sentencing. So the, her sentencing will be put off until after all the other defendants are taken care of. I just think morally what she did to the father is so cruel, so cruel that I really hope that the judge takes that into account. That's vicious. Yeah, it's definitely that- aggravating. Yeah, aggravating. Uh- it just, it makes me so ill. It just, this whole case makes me so ill. So last week is when Denali entered this guilty plea to first degree murder. This happened on February 15th. And as you said, a lot of the other charges were dropped. We'll see what sentencing is. Trial dates have not been set for Darren, Caden, Caleb. Um, although there is a shared appearance that is coming up on March 15th. So Lonnie is a former prosecutor. They each have individual trials, but they're having a shared appearance. What do you think that's about? Well, I'm assuming one prosecutor is handling all of the cases, right? But each defendant has their own defense attorney. So they may all still be trying to work out plea deals. I mean, you have statements from, you know, the main players. We don't know about the juveniles. Uh, And so they may all be working out plea deals and they can work that out. If and when they go to trial, each one of these defendants is going to want to have their own separate trial because they're going to be pointing the finger at the other defendants. So that will be a strategy um, decision made at time of trial if they don't work out a plea deal before then. And that's probably what this hearing is for. It's like, okay, everybody come in. Let's hear if you want to plead, this is what you're being offered. And if you're not pleading, we're all, you know, we're going to trial. Now for Darren, who is charged here as coming up with this plan, but not the one 
who pulled the trigger. And depending on what their communications will show, right, if there's a lot of detail in any of the messages, there may or may not be, we'll see. What's your opinion on that? Does he face the same kind of charge for first degree murder as opposed to the person who pulled the trigger, which is in dispute right now? So there are other, we don't know the specific charges against him, but we know the charges against Denali included conspiracy to commit murder. So he's definitely involved as a conspiracy because he he talked about it, he set it up and he did some acts in furtherance of it. You don't have to be the one to pull the trigger. You know, if you're involved in the conspiracy, so he can be um, held liable for that, whether or not he was the um, one who pulled the trigger. We'll be watching this case. Our next case is out of Riviera Beach, Florida, and it is a case that we've been following for two years now. The founder of Salt Life Clothing has pleaded guilty to manslaughter in the shooting death of his 18-year-old girlfriend. Now, one of the big issues in this case was that you had a much older man, who was 54 at the time, and then she was 18, and he claimed that they were messing around with a gun, she was accidentally shot, But if that's true, why did he run away? Why did he leave her? Why didn't he call for help? And this is what has bothered me about this case from the very beginning, because he failed to act in her best interest if it was just an accident. And I do believe, because he is so wealthy, that I think Frankly, I think he's gotten away with this, even though he's going to spend 12 years in prison. Really? 12 years for the loss of a life? I, I don't know. Maybe it's just me. I'm, I'm hypersensitive to this one, Lonnie. Well, I always, you know, it's always just an interesting exercise to replace this defendant with someone else. You know, someone who's not wealthy, who wasn't necessarily in this relationship with her and ended up, you know, being in the same situation where she gets killed like this, would there be any consideration for this this type of a 12-year sentence? You know, I, I, I think that's always an interesting way. You talked at the beginning about, you know, consistency of justice. And I will tell you, I, I, I believe in our justice system here in the United States because I think it's probably, you know, one of the fairest out there. But it is not in any way close to being fair and consistent across the board. It's just not. And that's for me, I have been working in this justice system since 1988 and I want it to be fair. I want everyone to be treated equally, but it's just not. And even if you go from courtroom to courtroom, you know, um, there's a big difference in how cases are handled, how people are treated. Um, you know, two very similar cases with two different judges could end up with very different outcomes. Um, two similar cases with different um, defendants can end up with different outcomes. When, when the OJ Simpson trial was going on, I had a very, very similar case um, that was going on at the same time, a murder case. And it was so similar that the Today Show came and covered it because they wanted to compare the two cases. What if, just take away the celebrity of the defendant and very similar case, you know, interracial marriage, husband killing the wife, children involved, um, you know, the wife separated, wanting to get a divorce. And mine was a guilty from a jury, you know, within a week. Um, And and, and so it's, 
the celebrity factor, uh, high profile, power, money, sadly, that enters in at all levels, from law enforcement's treatment of it to perhaps the way the prosecutors treat it, to the way the public treats it, to the way the judge might treat it. Um, it is something that we need to work harder on. There needs to be more awareness. That's why I am glad. I used to hate, you know, I thought that the media and the public coming to the courtroom so much, um, you know, tainted it somehow. But I've really turned around on that now that I see that there is so much inconsistency that we need to have that light on it so that people can see really what's going on and kind of hold people accountable, put that spotlight on it. And, and perhaps the parties involved will go, oh, you know, people are watching. We need to be we need to be a little more above board about all this. And this is a case that we've been watching. Lots of media outlets have been watching for two years because of the people involved, because of all of the things that unraveled that made this such an unusual case. And yet this is the outcome of it. So let's get into the details. Can't wait to hear your comments on whether you think this is justice or not. So we're talking about 56-year-old Michael Hutto, and he pleaded guilty to manslaughter with a firearm in the 2020 fatal shooting of Laura Duncan, who sometimes went by Gracie, her middle name. She was just 18 years old, okay? 54, 18. We're going to get to how they met. So the two were in a beachfront hotel room on Singer Island when Michael allegedly, accidentally shot Laura. Laura's body was found after her father requested a wellness check, and he is the one who tracked down his daughter through her cell phone. Now, the parents here of the victim are very important um, to what I believe happened here, um, and I don't believe that they have received justice. So here's the background. Michael Hutto formed this company called Salt Life Apparel. Many of you may know about it. This was founded back in 2003. Very successful. This was a beach brand uh, for surfers and boaters and, you know, pretty much that, that active lifestyle. And in 2013, Michael and the other founders sold the business for nearly $40 million. Okay. Everyone was doing very well. Michael had a lot of money. And that is where Michael's involvement with the brand ends. The brand feels very strongly about making sure everybody knows that. Michael at the time married, father of four, and that's when he begins this relationship with Laura Duncan. Michael met Laura at a gym. She worked at the gym. Michael was getting physical therapy for some kind of an accident following an, an ATV. Something happened there. Okay, Laura's parents made it clear they didn't like they did not like her dating this much older man. I get that as a parent. I totally get that, right? It's like you're kind of dating a beach bum, but with a lot of money, right? Yeah. It's, it's not what you want for your daughter. Um, so they were going on a trip. And here's the other thing. The communication between Laura and her parents, she said to them, well, we're going to the Keys. Then we're going to Daytona. We're meeting with some investors because Laura said she wanted to start a clothing line of herself. So Michael was going to help her. You know how I view that. I see that as manipulation. You know, really, she's going to find this 54-year-old that attractive? Give me a break, please. It keeps her in the relationship. Totally keeps her in the relationship. Come on. You know, he's wealthy. He's a guy who's known for maybe a beach line that when she was a little girl, <laughs> she may have liked. When she was born, probably. Probably. Ay, ay, ay. So um, she goes away for this weekend, but she has called her parents 
And during one of these calls, the parents tell police, Laura didn't sound right. Something was really off. Maybe she was on drugs. They suspected that she may have been sedated intentionally by this guy. We don't know what the truth is about that, but they were certainly worried and they told police that. So I don't know how seriously they were taken by police, right? I just don't know how seriously they were taken. It was the father who like pushed and pushed and pushed to said, you don't understand. Now we haven't heard from her at all. We need you to do a welfare check. I have figured out where she is based on tracking her phone. And that's what finally got police there. Who knows how much this man had to beg for attention. So she is found at the Hilton hotel room registered. There's a room registered Michael Hutto and the Riviera beach police get to the room. Now, this is October 29th of 2020. It is 10.50 in the morning. They say they could already smell. The cops say they could smell decomposition already before they even get in there, which makes me ask, Lonnie, where are all the people in the hotel? Does nobody else smell what the police smell? Yeah, where's the daily, you know, turndown service or the morning cleanup? Or Yeah, I don't know what kind of hotel this was, but... Um... Kind of makes you wonder why it had gone that long. I mean, just putting the do not disturb sign on the outside. Right. I mean, this. yeah, that has happened before with the do not disturb sign, right? That has happened. So the officers enter the room. It is room 713. And that's where they find Laura's body on the floor near the bathroom. She's covered in blood. There's a single gunshot wound to her stomach. And she's still wearing her bathing suit, probably from a day at the beach. Investigators found Michael Hutto's phone and wallet in the hotel room. Okay. It's registered to him. Okay. It's, this is the part that I have always found so fascinating about this case. So while the police are working one case at the murder scene, or we'll say the crime scene, okay, can't say murder, we'll say crime scene, a whole other set of of police are dealing with a totally different call with a totally different problem. They're responding to St. Augustine, Florida, that there is a man who appears to be suffering from some kind of an overdose. It turns out to be this man. And so he's pulled into a gas station and he's run out of gas. No, he doesn't have his cell phone and he doesn't have his wallet, so he can't get gas. But that's beyond it because he apparently seems so intoxicated that his eyes are rolling backward. He's not making any sense at all he's twitching he's crying so he's taken to the hospital once he gets to the hospital things start to add up because you've got the police at one scene where they have a young woman who is dead looking for this man this man is now in the hospital and everything kind of comes together so he's questioned at the hospital and you know, he's crying, doing, he's interviewed a few times. He's crying. He says, oh my God, I hurt my Gracie. Remember Laura goes by her middle name, Gracie. And then he shuts down the interview and then he's interviewed again. I mean, Lonnie, (laughs) what do you do with a case like this? Well, I think the police are doing exactly the right thing. They're, they're trying to get statements from him, right? And the first time they go to the hospital, it's kind of interesting because you could argue a defense attorney, if he was there, would have said he is in no condition mentally or physically. He's clearly under the influence of something. His eyes are rolling in the back of the head. He's here at the hospital, but um, he consents to give a statement and, you know, it's kind of incoherent, but does allegedly say this, you know, I think I hurt my Gracie. 
Um, at this point, I don't know if they realize that she's that's who it is. Although if that was a known nickname, uh, so then the very next day they go back there. You know, the police go back there. They're going to get that statement, and which was a very smart move. And that's when he tells them exactly, you know, what that what happened. Um, and and they get this description of, of the shooting. Um, and I think they believed it. Yeah, he said they were playing a game and they were doing a pantomime of shooting each other. But here's the problem. There was a real gun that was loaded in this game. So I don't do, right, you're saying, and it appears based on how this whole case has been handled, that they always believed that that was what happened. Because what he describes is they're playing this game, they're pantomiming, shooting each other with, you know, a finger and a gun. She was sitting on the bathroom counter when the gun went off shooting her. Um, That would be a manslaughter if that's the way it went. No intent to kill, no, you know, passionate, um, you know, reaction, provocation, altercation. They're just doing something extremely dangerous to life, life-threatening. They know it. You're talking about a loaded gun. That That's like a stereotypical um, textbook manslaughter. So the fact that, you know, they end up charging him as manslaughter means that they took his word solely for what happened. The question is, did they look at other alternatives? Did they look at other things? Now, the fact that he left his wallet and he left his cell phone does appear to corroborate that he's leaving, you know, quickly, uh, sort of in a panic. Um, but then the other question, like you said, is why why didn't he come forward? Why did uh, he call for help? What yeah. if what if a call to nine one one would have saved her life? And what? that is the part that I find is the complete disregard for human life. This is the part that a lot offends me. But but that failure to act, if all of that is true. Call 911 and give her a chance. By running out that door, he gave her no chance to survive that. And that is why I think it is so unfair and why I don't believe that this is justice. You know, he may have been, you know, out of his mind on drugs, but so out of his mind on drugs that he knew, for example, to, he tells police this and and the evidence supports it, that he grabs the gun and he puts it into a black Adidas backpack before leaving the room and he manages to drive. So how out of it is he if he is smart enough to grab the murder weapon, which is then found in the car by police? Really? You're that out of it? You're telling me you can't dial three numbers on a freaking cell phone or holler down the hall for help? Yeah. Even if you're going to take off yes, for help so that she has some chance. And you're right. Absolutely. The, the, the thought to take the gun um, with you is definitely some level of rational thought, you know, protecting yourself rather than taking care of her. Right. And that's why I am just so angry about this case. You know, we've been following it for so many years that I feel like, There was some hope here that maybe if we all follow this carefully and as that chorus of people, um, because I, you know, justice should be something determined by a community. uh, I, I guess I was being a little too hopeful here. So the arrest warrant then is finally issued for Michael on October 30th, and he was charged. And also as part of that charge was the possession of the firearm. Now, 
this, we get, finally we get into the, the plea part of this. And Michael's attorney has described the crime this way. This is the part that makes me want to throw up. He said, quote, this is an accident, a stupid, tragic, heartbreaking accident that basically ruined two families, close quote. No doubt that his family has been impacted, his innocent children, his innocent wife, every member of that family innocent, you know, to find out that your loved one is involved in something like this, plus cheating on mom, okay, and all this other stuff. I get that. But are they ruined? No, 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 no. They're not ruined. Laura's family is ruined. They are ruined. She is dead. I, I think his attorney should have thought the, that through. You know, making it sound like a tragic accident is just those words are so offensive. It's like, oh, accident. Like, the, you know, no value to life. Like, no, no. He recognized how dangerous that was. Even if you call it an accident, it, it was a knowing action that was highly reckless. At the very least, highly reckless. It wasn't like just an accident. He did something. There was some action and some judgment and some thought on his point on his part. I, I, I don't know. I think that they should, you know, obviously they got a, a, a deal from the prosecution here because it was a it was a plea um, for this deal. And I think the defense attorney should have been more careful in that statement. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it just shows this thing reeks of privilege and this lack of empathy for the victim and the survivors of this horrific, it is a crime. It is a crime. And um, the fact that he would be so bold as to say something so insensitive just really makes me ill. Let's feel, he's basically saying, let's feel sorry for this millionaire beach bum who was an idiot. <laughs> That's what he's saying. That's not what he should be saying. And then he went on to tell the court that he really loved her, you know, even though it's, and he admitted, the attorney admitted, I know it sounds a little odd to say that because of the age difference, but in the nature of their relationship, but he absolutely loved her. Really? <laughs> and by saying that, <laughs> then he's stabbing Michael's family in the heart yeah. and the children. Yeah. Who are probably all sitting there supporting him through this. Yeah. yeah. And, and make it any better no he loved her and to your point it makes it 10 times worse that he didn't try to do anything for her yes that's how, love. how great was that love when you didn't think to even here she is dying and you're thinking about saving yourself not doing anything for her so where you know what level of love is there is this justice? You all weigh in. I can't wait to hear your opinions. So he has pleaded guilty to manslaughter with a firearm, sentenced to 12 years behind bars, and he'll be getting 79 days credit for time served. Our silence is deafening. It is time for our comment section. These are the crimes that you all are talking about on social media. Here's our producer, Will Updike. Hey, Will. Hey, Anna, how's it going? Good. Good to see you, Lonnie. Hi, great to see you, Will. All right, so this one um, is a little bit of a change of pace. This one uh, is, is kind of a serious one, but we were just all 
it's just so bizarre and interesting um, that we felt we had to share it with you. So this case comes out of Cork, Ireland, where an examiner has reported that a victim here, Jasper Krause, was fatally attacked by a rooster that was, this rooster was reportedly moved to Jasper's property after this same rooster attacked a child. And we'll talk about that a little bit more later. But Basically, this examiner arrived on the crime scene uh, April 28th of 2022, where Jasper Krause was found dead in his kitchen. He had suffered a wound to the back of one of his legs, and paramedics were there. Uh, they tried to revive the victim, but these attempts were just unsuccessful. Um, now, Jasper had a tenant named Corey O'Keefe. Uh, he was there. He, he was there on the scene. He he first discovered Jasper, and he told Jasper's daughter about the situation. So the daughter arrives. She sees her father on the ground with paramedics. They're performing CPR, just, just trying to do everything that they can. Um, and like I said, he had suffered this puncture wound to his left leg. And apparently, according to the daughter, there was a trail of blood leading from the kitchen to an outdoor chicken coop, like just a, a direct line wow. there. Um, and so right away, Jasper's daughter thinks that, you know, one of these chickens may have been involved. And uh, this suspected rooster, as I said, he had kind of a violent past. I, I don't know how else to describe it, but this same rooster had reportedly attacked his granddaughter. So his daughter's uh, uh, daughter there. Um, but so Corey O'Keefe, this tenant, he had tried to perform CPR before the paramedics even get there. He said it was something like 25 minutes. He was he was trying to do chest compressions and, and do the whole thing. Um, but uh, apparently like something uh, struck Corey O'Keefe was that Jasper was reportedly just he was repeating the word rooster as he went in and out of consciousness. Um, and then he was later pronounced dead at the scene. So really weird situation um, and, and really insane how they kind of dealt with it. Basically, the coroner recorded this death as an accident. Um, and, and they did know, however, that the ordeal was just a dreadful experience for the family. Um, and Jasper's daughter actually said something interesting. She said that the family, uh, because this was ruled as an accident, they didn't receive any sort of support um, to clean up the blood following the death. So it, it, they would have done that. My understanding is if it were a murder, they would have the crime scene people come in and, and clean this up. And it, just a really unfortunate situation for this um, story. It, it got a lot of sympathy from uh, our viewers online. Uh, Carrie provided uh, a little bit of background. They said uh, like that the roosters, they can hit a varicose vein and that can cause the victim to bleed out. Wow. And Carrie had actually heard of this before. They said, uh, this is the second time I've heard about a rooster killing its owner. This oh was a God. first for me, but very, very terrifying. Garmer said uh, that they had some background on, on raising roosters. They said the people who are shocked have likely never raised roosters. With maturity, they develop spurs on their legs that they can use when they attack. Now, apparently these spurs are sharp spikes that can be inches long. And these roosters, you know, they, they learn how to use them. It's, you know, it's something that they, uh, it's, you know, an evolutionary kind of protection thing. Talia said, this is so sad, heartbreaking that the family found him this way it's basically like getting stabbed, it seems. Um, so they had a lot of condolences for the family. Uh, and, and Kyle B kind of echoed what uh, Jasper's daughter said. He, he said, uh, sucks that nobody was there to help the family clean it up. Must be so traumatizing to witness your father pass and then have to clean the scene. So rest easy to the father. And I hope the daughter is able to find support in her friends, family, and community. We're all wishing the same thing. And just such an uh, like when Anna sent me this headline, it was just such a bizarre and sad situation and, and something that I've personally never seen anything like. But yeah, your your heart has to go out to the family in this situation and just such a such a bizarre happenstance. I think that it uh, it, it just kind of reminds us like how precious life is and how mm -hmm. precious our kind of loved ones are around us. So, um, yeah, you, you never know. You never know what could happen.
And I, I'm curious, Lonnie, so, you know, there appears to be some kind of a record of this rooster being violent toward humans, right, and allegedly having attacked a, a child. So I'm curious here because, you know, this has applications to, let's say, other animals that have attacked and killed. Is there any... um like, is there anything other than ruling this as an accident? It's a difficult part of the law, I would presume. Yeah, well, so you can't charge an animal with murder, obviously, right? right? They can't form the intent to kill. We don't apply the law to him. But you can charge the owners, and that has been done. The The appropriate uh, punishment for the animals is usually done through, like, you know, animal control regulations if they're deemed to be a dangerous animal. Um, then they can do certain things to protect the the public from them. But this reminds me of the case. It was up in San Francisco area of yes, right there. There uh, two women owned this dog, and the dog had a history. They lived in an apartment building. It had a history of being vicious, and it attacked one of the women who another woman who lived in this apartment one day and killed her. Yes. And uh, the prosecutors filed on the the owners at least one of them. And it was an unusual, like sort of a first time case of prosecuting owners of an animal. And they did get a conviction, I believe. Um, I don't remember if it was manslaughter or for murder, but, and part of it was, they looked at the history, the record of this dog, and there had been numerous reports that the dog had been aggressive, tried to attack other people in the building. And that was attributed as knowledge to the owners. So yeah, there's something to be, to be done for the owners of the animals. But in this case, you know, the owner was the one who knew about the history and, and accepted the, the rooster under his, his control. But I'm really glad to hear uh, the further comments, Will, from the, the viewers, because I'm like, how could that ever happen just by, you know, attacking a leg? I had no idea that, that you, they could hit a varicose vein and you could bleed out that way. I mean, it's just, it's almost, it, it's such a shock, you know, and unexpected, but apparently people who work with roosters are like, no, this, this kind of thing happens. So... Yeah. yeah, it's it's not an animal that you would expect to be aggressive, but I mean, you know, it, apparently anything can happen. Right. I mean, we've heard, and this has happened a lot, um, with, for example, uh, you know, birds that will uh, poke an eye out, um, you know, especially children who live in third world countries and are doing a lot of work with their parents, uh, people who work in marshes, have been attacked by birds and lost an eye. I mean, that really does happen. Um, uh, in fact, uh, there was a case in Cambodia. I was a volunteer on a medical mission there and I was at an eye hospital and one of the children who came in for help, I mean, I was, I mean, I was so, I couldn't believe that his, he lost his eye because he was helping his mom in the fields. And, and that is how he lost his eye attacked by a bird. So these, you know, we do know obviously that animals can injure, not Necess I, I don't know about intent, but, you know, they're animals. This case was just so unusual. I know we always try to keep this part of the program a little bit lighter, but it's just such an unusual case that we wanted to fit it in so you all could have a discussion about it because it's so serious. Yeah, yeah, it's it's very bizarre. And I, I mean, like we said, I, I think like the takeaway here is like life is pretty fragile. So be be thankful for those moments and be thankful for, for your family and your loved ones that are there. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, thank you, Will. We appreciate it. And just a little update for everyone. Um, you know, uh, because we hit more than 5 million, we're trying to figure out how to work you all into the program. And you all have responded to Will on um, YouTube, right? So that's yeah. moving along. 
Yes. So we look forward to bringing you on. Uh, but that'll do it for me this week. Uh, thank you so much. And I will see you next week. Well, Lonnie, it's uh, we've got some crazy cases this this episode. Um, yeah. So I know you're watching another case, which we're all obsessed about by the time. I don't think we'll have a verdict by the time this podcast comes out on Friday, but you're watching the Murdoch case. Insanity. Yeah, gavel to gavel. And hopefully the defense case will be ending by Friday. I don't know. That's what they're saying. And then there's still perhaps a prosecution rebuttal and then closing arguments. So it's it was supposed to be three weeks. It's, you know, in its fifth week and it's still going on. All right. And so, Lonnie, where can people follow you and your updates on all these cases? I know you're everywhere. You've been on the Dr. Phil show. I turn around, you're on another podcast. You're everywhere. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So I I, uh, list a lot of it on Instagram. That's the best place to check. Just Lonnie Coombs on Instagram. Also on Twitter as well, Lonnie Coombs. All right. Well, uh, you can find me at Anna G News on all social media. All our episodes are available wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. More than 5 million subscribers there. You can sign up to receive our newsletter at truecrimedaily.com. I'm your host, Anna Garcia. Until next week, as we always say, don't do crime.